Well, it's great to be with you. Uh, just before I start, I wanted to make a, just to make you aware of a couple of updates really around what we're thinking at the moment for this next term as a church. Uh, to make you aware, some of you might not know, it's been out on, may have seen Steve's blog this week, but if, if you didn't see that, we are thinking that at the moment we don't need to particularly change the way that we've been planning to do things in terms of meetings, that we're going to continue to meet in person and online on Sundays through this term, really through between now and Easter. doesn't look like we're going to need to change our plan on that, which is great. A lot of us will be able to meet in person. Plenty of us will not feel able to or not be able to, and so we'll still provide the online service at the moment. Um, we're going to do our week of prayer, which you've already heard about online. I trust you've probably already heard about that. I'm going to do that, which is a really exciting opportunity to pray together. But one change we have had to make is to change the preaching series that we're going to do together through the course of this term. Uh, we were planning to do our series Undivided, which we've actually done quite a lot of work on already in preparing. Um, we're going to do a series called Undivided on race, grace and Galatians. And you may remember off the back of the survey that many of you helpfully contributed to last term, we wanted to speak into the issue of race out of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we're still planning to do that, but we felt like it wouldn't be right to do it at a time of the year when so many of the church may, not, may still not be able to come back yet. So we were going to delay it a bit and then probably do it in May rather than doing it now uh, in this term, which is what we had planned. So what we're going to do instead is to do a series that I trust will be really timely and pastorally helpful for us, which is a series out of the wonderful letter of 1 Peter. And if you've got a Bible, you may want to turn there now because we're going to begin uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to do a series through the letter of 1 Peter called Living Hope. And we're going to look at how it is that in and through all of the trials that we face, and there are plenty of them, how the unbreakable promises of God sustain us through those trials and help us persevere and stand and rejoice and so many other things. And we're going to see as we go through this eight-week series on this fantastic letter how God has given us his promises to carry us through, like an unshakable, unmovable rock of promises that we can stand on in the midst of the trials that we face. So I'm really excited about it. And uh, 1 Peter is a letter that written somewhere around 80s, 60s to a, a group of Christians right across Turkey who are, we, we quickly find out, scattered. And Peter even calls them elect exiles, people who are sort of all over the place and living as outsiders in the world. And he's writing to them to bolster their hope in a time of trial. And so we think that's a very timely book for us to read in a period where we are a bit more scattered than we hoped, perhaps, and certainly facing various kinds of trials. And we're going to look at how God's promises sustain us through them. And as I look at the letter, there's a whole load of different sorts of trials. And the joy of this series is that there are so many very real-world, sort of sticky, practical situations that Peter addresses the gospel to. Now, I count at least 10, and I wanted to summarize them up front. As we go through the series, you'll see them all unfold. But actually, I think there are at least 10 different sorts of trial that Christians face that Peter refers to, even in this very short letter. It's only five chapters. I mean, the trial of, number one, the passions of the flesh waging war against your soul. Number two, the trial of false accusation. Number three, a situation of slaves, and there's many slaves in, this, in the churches he's speaking to, whose masters are treating them unjustly and abusing them. How you respond in a godly way. Fourthly, women who are in difficult marriage situations. In this specific case, they might be married to people who aren't believers and how they handle that dynamic and so on. Number five, what we might call just persecution. 
people trying to stop them being Christians and attacking them for it. Number six, being ridiculed for not leading ungodly lives or debauched lives. Like, so people facing mockery for not doing the sorts of things that their friends or colleagues might do. Number seven, what he just simply calls fiery trials. We don't quite know exactly what they are, but they seem of a different nature perhaps than many of the others. Number eight, insults for the name of Christ. Number nine, anxiety. I imagine that's something many of us have wrestled with in these last couple of years. And number 10, the attacks of the devil who is seeking to eat us, basically, devour us like a roaring lion looking for prey. And those are just the 10 that he mentions here. And it, these teachings apply to many other issues as well. But it's very powerful for us to know that Peter, you know, the great apostle Peter, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, who Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on this guy. Peter is very aware, acutely aware, of the pressures and trials that face ordinary Christian folk in a fallen world. And he writes this letter to reassure and strengthen and fortify them, us. But he doesn't build his whole letter around those trials. He doesn't start there. He doesn't say, right, guys, I know it's been tough, so let me sympathize. He does sympathize and he does address trials, but he doesn't start there. He doesn't start with a problem. And I think by God's grace, neither should we. He starts by fixing their hearts and minds on the solution, which is the living hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then with that hope framed, he applies it to lots of different kinds of situations and takes promises and Christian teachings which will fortify people in the midst of those trials because they know the living hope they have in Christ. So let's read 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more, perish, more, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of God. The English poet Rudyard Kipling has a very short, slightly silly poem that has really helped me ask good questions of scripture. 
He says, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. And if you are meditating on scripture or trying to get the best out of it, and I trust we are, those six questions can really help us. What, why, when, how, where, who. They are very helpful at just going, all right, how do I interrogate this passage to help me answer those questions with respect to that theme? So what I want to do is to take those six questions and ask them of this passage about living hope. I say, okay, Peter talks about a living hope. All right, what is that? Why does it exist? Where does it come from? Where, where is it right now? When will, we, when will we get it? Who's it for? How does it come about? And just to press the text with those questions. And you might find it, you may do this anyway, but I just kind of find it helpful. Like, what, why, when, when, who? Okay, just helps me get my head around what sorts of questions can I ask Scripture of the theme that it's speaking about. And so I want to do that as we go through this morning and just give some time considering what is the living hope? Where is it? Who's it for? How does it happen? When does it happen? And why? And so I'm going to start by asking what it is. What is the, the living hope that Peter talks about? You know, bless be God and Father. He's given us a living hope. Okay, what is that? What's a living hope? We sing it in that song, but what is a living hope? And verses three and four makes it actually quite clear what it is. It says, according to his great mercy, he, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Hope requires an object, right? You can't just hope in the abstract. You have to hope in something or hope that something. So I hope that X will happen, or I put my hope in Y, or I have a hope for Z for Christmas or this year or whatever it might be. And the object of that hope is made quite explicit in this text, right? It says, the, ho- the living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and infa- unfading. The living hope of the Christian is a hope of an indestructible, unfading, incorruptible, glorious, eternal inheritance. That's the hope we have. Everlasting, abundant life, we could call it. Or treasures in heaven, as Jesus calls it. And the readers of this letter need to know that. They need to know that the inheritance that they have in Christ is one that can't be taken away. And one of the reasons they need to know that is that they are, as we've already read, scattered exiles. Which is to say that a lot of these people have physically lost their earthly inheritance because they've probably converted to Christianity. So if you're a a, a pagan or a Jewish person who's converted to Christianity, you may well have, it may have cost you your earthly inheritance. Your land that you were going to inherit or that you perhaps already owned has been given up. You might have had to physically move. You might have been dislocated. You might have been driven out of your home. Many of these people are suffering and they are exiles. That's what Peter calls them. And because they're exiles, they know what it's like to have an inheritance disappear in front of their eyes. Many people you read about in the New Testament, that happens to them. They become believers and they lose their inheritance. And so Peter's saying, yes, but the inheritance you've got now in Christ can't be taken away. It's imperishable. It's unfading. It's everlasting. It's undefiled. And many of the readers of this letter are like, they're migrants, basically. We, we know uh, a family of Syrian migrants from Syria in, in my hometown of Eastbourne. And we got to know their family. And they had a lot of wealth when they were in Syria. 
But when the war got too dangerous for them, they knew they were gonna to have to leave and they just had to, the whole family moved and they had no choice but to start again and leave all of their, effectively their physical wealth was left behind. It's now worth nothing. It's become a war zone. They've had to move and had to start again. They've lost their inheritance and had to begin anew. And Peter really speaks to the church here as if he says, you're like that. That's what's happened to you. You had all of these inheritances stored up for you in the world and now you've converted to follow Jesus. You've lost it. Right? These things that you could place your hope in and bank on have now gone and you're now following Jesus and all of your hope is now in him. And for people like that, nothing is more reassuring than the guarantee that your new inheritance in Christ can never be taken away. It can't be destroyed. Its purity can't be defiled. Its beauty cannot fade. It is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And I think it's the same Inheritance that Jesus describes when he talks about heavenly treasure. You know that wonderful passage in Luke 12, 33. Notice the parallels between these two passages, right? Provide purses for yourselves that won't wear out, a treasure in heaven that won't fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, right? It won't wear out, it won't fail, can't be destroyed. And then Peter, similarly, born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. I think... Peter is writing as someone who has heard Jesus say that on Galilean hillsides many times. And it's formed even the way that he naturally speaks in his letters. We have been born again to a living hope. And that living hope is of an inheritance that cannot be destroyed. That's what it is. Where is it? Right? This is a slightly simpler question. Where is that inheritance? And the answer is pretty obvious in verse 5. An inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's kind of obvious. That's why you think, well, of course, that's roughly where I'd expect it to be. Your inheritance, your abundant, everlasting life of incorruptibility and resurrection hope, your inheritance is kept in heaven for you with your name on it and no one can steal it. But that doesn't mean that you have to wait until you get to heaven in order to take advantage of it. And we'll come back to that towards the end of this message. But it is actually quite an important point to make. That even though it is, that's where it is, that doesn't mean it's just stuck there and you've got, it's got no difference to your life now. So if I, my friend comes round and I say to him, oh, I've got a beer with, beer with your name on it in the fridge. I don't expect him to climb into the fridge in order to get the beer. right? I'm saying it's, it's kept in the fridge for you. But that doesn't mean it's meant to stay there. It means actually you can benefit from it now, but you just need to sort of draw it out. And there is some of that in this passage, that your inheritance has been kept in heaven for you, but that doesn't mean it's inaccessible to you now. What it does mean is that you won't fully receive all of its benefits until a future date, which we will come back to when we look at the when. But your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy it now. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. So that's what the living hope is, this indestructible, everlasting inheritance, and where it is in heaven. Who is it for? Who is the living hope for? And the, the obvious answer at this point is Christians, followers of Jesus, disciples, people like many of us watching this. That's the you in verse 4, right? But that's not quite how Peter describes them, and I find it quite interesting. He is talking about Christians and disciples, but he uses a very interesting phrase to describe what a Christian is in his greeting. Chapter 1 and verse 1, the very opening line of the letter, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. 
So Peter, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about people like you and me or many of us. He's saying people who believe in Jesus and who've given their lives to him and want to follow him. So that's who he's talking about. But he doesn't describe us that way. He describes us by calling us elect exiles. Chosen migrants, you could say. Selected sojourners. Strangers on earth who are chosen in heaven. That's what he's saying. Elect exiles. It's a fascinating, it's amazing how much you can do with just two words. There's a lot of different ways in which you could describe believers in the New Testament. Right? Jesus calls his followers disciples. He calls them apostles. He calls them his friends. Paul writes his letters and often will talk to them as his, his, user, his word that he uses to describe them is beloved or brothers and sisters or saints. Peter chooses the phrase elect exiles, chosen migrants, if you like. He wants us to know that we are strangers on earth and that we have been chosen in heaven. And if you don't know that both of those things are true, that you're a stranger on earth and that you've been chosen in heaven, suffering will ruin your life. It will. Because if you don't know that you're an exile, if you don't know that you're a stranger or a sojourner on this earth, then you won't expect suffering when it comes. And you know, won't know what to do when it does. And when you face trials, and when those trials are incredibly tough, which they often are, for us as much as for Peter's, Peter's friends and churches, when you face trials like that, you will think that those trials mean that God doesn't love you. Because you won't be thinking, this is part of the normal state of things as long as I'm in this life, in this fallen world, I'm an exile. But if you don't know that, you think, no, this is my home. Everything should be fine. And then suffering strikes, you think, I must have done something to offend God. Friends, I, I meet Christians like this, and they think that the suffering they're going through is somehow a, a punishment or a consequence of something that they've done that God is still angry about, and he's going to make sure that they suffer for it. And they don't realize that the sufferings of this present time are baked into the state we have as exiles in the world. So you need to know that you're an exile, because otherwise you won't know how to handle suffering. But at the same time, you need to know you're not just exile, but you're elect. You're chosen. You're not just a stranger on earth. You've been chosen in heaven. Because if you don't know you're chosen, you won't be able to persevere through the trials. You won't have the living hope you need. And you'll risk despair that the world will never be better than it is now. And so you need to know both that you're an exile and that you're elect. You've got to have balance those truths and say, okay, I'm an exile, therefore I'm going to face all kinds of estrangement and dislocation and unpleasantness as I walk around this world. But I'm also elect, I'm chosen, I'm loved by God, I'm everlastingly secure, and that empowers me to persevere through those very trials. Well, that's who the living hope is for. It's for you, it's for me, but as elect exiles of the dispersion. And in, of course, in Peter's audience, scattered throughout Turkey. I, I think it extends, of course, more widely than that to, the, to all believers. So that's the what, the where, and the who. Followers of Jesus, elect exiles, have been born again to a living hope, an imperishable inheritance, which is kept in heaven for us. But how? How does that happen? Well, look at verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the way in which that living hope has come to be. It is both the means of our hope and the guarantee that our hope will be achieved. 
right? It is the means that we come to hope in Christ and it's also the basis we have for being certain it will happen. The resurrection is the means of our hope because it is only as Jesus came out of the tomb and came to life that we come alive. It's only that we are born again as Jesus rose from the dead. Him coming out of the tomb is like us coming out of the womb. That's the picture being used here. Jesus came to life from death physically and as a result we can be certain that we will come to life from death physically and that we have already come from to life from death spiritually. We have been born again. New life has come to us just like new life came to the corpse of Jesus on Easter Sunday morning. The resurrection is also, it's not just the, the way our hope came to be, it's also the guarantee we have that it will come true in the future. In that it is the resurrection which demonstrates that God will bring even the deepest darkness to glorious light. So if I was looking around to, to clutch at something and say, I really want to believe, Andrew, I really do. I want to believe that God is going to turn all of these awful sufferings into a beautiful glory and an imperishable inheritance. Where can I latch my hope onto to take hold of? What's, what's the solid thing I can put my hope in? You say, the fact that Jesus Christ, having been thoroughly, completely dead, rose to new life and defeated death in himself is the guarantee you need that your inheritance will be as imperishable as his and that your new body will be as unfading and as glorious as his. If Jesus is still dead, I made this point in the Christmas carol services actually, but if Jesus is still dead, there is no certainty that the world will get better. And in fact, it will probably get worse. But if Jesus came out of the tomb, if today Jesus is alive, risen and reigning, then ultimately everything is going to be all right. As twee as that sounds, everything one day will be okay. One day, if Jesus is alive, because death has been defeated by the Lord Jesus. Two weeks ago, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, formerly of this parish, died. I'm sure many of us read about it. I didn't know, actually. I, I did, that's, that's when I discovered that he, was from, he had lived in Lewisham for years. I didn't know that until I was reading these obituaries of him. But here's how Desmond Tutu explained the connection between the hope we have as Christians and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead just a few years ago. Let's watch this video clip. The op optimism. Uh -uh. I'm not an optimist, but I am a prisoner of hope, mm. <laughs> which is quite different because I think optimism mm. uh, is, is really wobbly. And it isn't, I, I think that, I mean, Mary may have not mentioned it, but I think also that having a faith, mm -hmm. um, and, and I, I, I am a Christian, and at the heart of our faith is, in, in a sense, one of the worst kind of failures, or what appeared to be this Good Friday, when Good Friday happened, it looked like, I mean, evil had accomplished all that it sought. Now, when you believe in, in this and you see that Good Friday gets to be followed by Easter, you know, then, then forever you will be a 
prisoner of hope. Isn't that great? Christ's resurrection makes us prisoners of hope. So that's how the living hope comes to be in our lives. But it's all very well talking, isn't it, about how the world will one day be better in the future and that our imperishable inheritance will come. But how long do you have to wait? When is it going to be here? That's almost pastorally, that's often the pressing question. You go, yeah, I, I know it's the who, I know the how. But when? When is the living hope going to come? And in one sense, the answer is at the return of Christ. Right? Peter says, verses 5 to 7, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, in a sense, Peter is saying, yeah, your, your living hope is going to come to be in its fullness at the return of Jesus Christ, when you will be, in that sense, fully saved in the future, he will return, all will be well, and in the meantime, you have to wait because you're seeing the tested genuineness of your faith is resulting in glory and praise at the day Jesus returns. But in another sense, you can start enjoying that inheritance now. And I alluded to this earlier, you don't have to get into the fridge to get the beer, right? It's not like, when it says it's kept in heaven, that doesn't mean you can't get any of it until you get to heaven. Salvation is future, as we've just seen there, salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. But salvation is also present. And the joy which will that day be ours is available to us now in and through the person of the Holy Spirit. So verses 8 and 9 says, Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you don't now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice now with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So you might say, of Peter, like, hang on, Peter, are you saying, I thought the salvation was in the, ready to be revealed in the future, but you're saying you're obtaining it, it now. And he's saying, yes, I am saying that. You, it is in the future and it's in the present, and the joy that you will then receive totally and utterly, you can now receive a deposit of, a down payment of, in and through the person of the Holy Spirit all the time, and it will fill you with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And the, the, analogy, the only analogy I could think of for this, which I, I hope helps, I, I kind of occasionally watch home improvement shows. I, I'm not really a sucker for them generally, but there's this great show that I really like anyway called Your Home Made Perfect. Have you seen it? It's the one with the VR goggles. It's the one where instead of saying, we're going to design our home, they get an architect round with a VR, thing, virtual reality goggles, and they, they say to the people, okay, your house is rubbish for all of these reasons, but you, we're now going to put on some goggles and you can see what your house will be if you go with our design. And they put these goggles on and they're still standing in their house, but suddenly they can see this incredible transformation taking place. And the back walls disappeared and the whole thing's become open plan and the gardens looks completely different. And they start celebrating. They go, it's a Amazing. I can't believe it. I can see my house. And you and I might say to them, but you can't see your house. That's not real. You're not there yet. You don't live in it yet. And they'd say, no, I know, but I've got a, a foretaste or a down payment or a current experience of the future joy that I will have if this was what my house looked like. And I think Peter is saying, you have that by the Spirit. 
No, you're right. You're not there yet in the sense that your imperishable inheritance is still something you're waiting for. But you can experience much of that joy now, not through VR goggles that make you feel like you're there, but through the very real given person of the Holy Spirit living inside you and filling you with unspeakable and glorious joy. And then finally, the big question. We, elect exiles, have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus to a living hope of an imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for us. Why? Why on earth has God done that? And the answer is, it's as profound as it is simple, actually. The answer is, according to his great mercy. That's the only reason. It's not because there's something beautifully lovely about you and me that meant God said, oh, I must save that person. It's actually because God has initiated out of his mercy, not our loveliness, to save us. The why comes from him, not from us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Brothers and sisters, hope, the kind of hope we're talking about, is a gift, not a reward. It's not something God gives you because you've done well. It's something he gives you because he is abundantly merciful and he wants you to have a living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Saviour, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. We're going to stand and sing that wonderful song. You'll probably sing it better than I did, and the band certainly will. But let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for this living hope, indestructible, imperishable, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We glory in that hope. We revel in it and we pray that we would now, even as we sing this song, be filled with joy inexpressible and filled with glory because of what God has done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.